Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. So just a few words about me. Well, uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I like to say, well, with a name like Nut, there aren't many careers in medicine. (laughs) I went into medicine to do research, and I've been doing research pretty much all my professional career alongside clinical work. And I worked on the effects of drugs in the brain, and I've been pretty successful in terms of publishing I had four children, and uh, thankfully they're all still alive, just. Um, so I've seen a lot of things that happen when uh, children go through teenage years in, uh, in the current climate. I've seen a lot of very, very drunk teenagers, and I've seen teenagers taking other things as well. And uh, that's made me a lot wiser uh, and more knowledgeable about these issues. But, uh, as was just mentioned in the introduction, uh, the only reason any of you know of me, apart from my friends here, well, there are three, I think, uh, <laughs> is that I was a government drugs advisor. For nine years, I chaired the, what you might call the scientific committee of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And uh, because I was so good at doing that, so they promoted me to chair of the full council, the ACMD. And there I had run-ins with two home secretaries, uh, which led to my being sacked. And, uh, and then I went from being just a, an obscure psychiatrist with a funny name to being a sort of centre of uh, worldwide attention about uh, drugs and drug policy. And um, I have to be conscious, knowing that Lord Equal actually has uh, had a role in that government, but (laughs) one problem with the Labour Party is it doesn't learn the lessons of history, and it should have remembered what Margaret Thatcher said about the IRA. Don't give them the oxygen of publicity. (laughs) And, uh, And sacking me publicly was a very silly thing to do, because... I'd, I'd had three interviews on TV bef- within the hour of being sacked, and the best the government could do was have Alan Johnson on Sky News two and a half days later. So, so they didn't really understand the rules about engagement at the time. <laughs> so you know about me now. Ah. Unfortunately, we have a... Yes, there's a little glitch here, uh, a slight problem with your IT. Anyway, that's an image of me being sacked. Which doesn't. It's always been censored. Uh, so I was sacked for saying that, um, uh, that essentially that the hysteria around drugs like ecstasy and cannabis was uh, inappropriate for their relative levels of harm, and actually, in many ways, is a, a, almost a ploy to avoid confronting this, the real problem in our society of alcohol, and to some extent tobacco, and, and that didn't go down very well. Uh, particularly the comment I made that, that cannabis was actually uh, less harmful than alcohol. But as you'll see on the next slide, I now know I was right because a couple of years ago, President Obama agreed. And, uh, and this is a truly momentous statement because it's certainly the first time in my living history that an American president has ever told the truth about drugs. And cannabis is less harmful than alcohol, even in America. And for that reason, tonight I am wearing a Harvard tie to celebrate Obama's telling the truth about drugs. Uh, And it's particularly important because it says veritas. And one of the problems with with thinking about drugs is that veritas, truth, for those of you who don't know Latin, uh, is something that's in extraordinary short supply. And uh, that, was, that statement was important. It stopped the feds destroying cannabis pharmacies in states like California, where the population had voted to have medical marijuana, even, uh, which is illegal in federal uh, uh, 
areas, but is legal in many states. Two, two, about 200,000 Americans now have access to medical marijuana, uh, but it's illegal to have it under federal law. And Obama did not want a war between the feds and the pharmacies. And uh, the feds wanted a war, of course, because that's how they get paid. But, uh, but they, he didn't want that. So he said, no, we're not going to fight that war anymore. But that statement had ramifications way beyond America. Because until that point, the US had been controlling international drugs policy and was insisting that all countries complied with the UN conventions, which it wrote that cannabis should stay as a Schedule I drug. And when you cannot control your own states, you certainly have lost any kind of intellectual capacity to control other countries. You may still have financial powers over those countries, and that, those will certainly be welded. Uh, but uh, it, the moral authority has now gone. And that's going to change the whole tenure of the debate about the drugs. There's a vacuum now which Russia is trying to fill, but, but we just hope that Britain won't follow Russia's lead on that as we followed the American lead. So I'm a scientist of sorts, and um, as, as a scientist, I'm interested in the <coughs> fundamental question, really. What is a drug? You might be amazed to know that the United Nations Conventions and the British Misuse of Drugs Act does not define a drug. So we have to. And this, I've decided <coughs> on what you might call a p policy decision, a definition. <laughs> um, and uh, this, is my, this is my definition. Um, so Jackie Smith was a Home Secretary with whom I had a, a, an interesting dialogue about the comparative harms of horse riding and ecstasy. And when she was uh, made Home Secretary, she was asked the question that they all get asked, have you taken any drugs? And instead of telling the truth, which was, yes, but I only drink half a bottle of Chardonnay a night, she said, I smoke cannabis, but I didn't enjoy. And, and that's a very interesting statement for a Home Secretary to make. Uh, for two reasons. The first is that not enjoying is not a defense in law. <laughs> and the second is this, and I don't know, you might be able to help me, but do we know why she smoked cannabis? And I don't know why. I never actually got around to asking her. It didn't seem appropriate when we were talking about horse riding, but um, uh, I suspect the answer would be to get into the Labour Party in Oxford at the time. That's what you had to do. And then there's David Cameron, and he said when he became leader of the Tory party, uh, I did things when young that I shouldn't have. We all did. Now, that, I think, is called the Eton we, um, otherwise known as the conservative front bench. And uh, when he made that statement, we knew of certain things. We knew, actually, he'd done cannabis and cocaine, but there were certain other things we hadn't understood he did at the time. We don't even know if he has now, but they weren't. Anyway, we don't know. We won't pursue that. I like this man, the future leader of our country in his own mind. There's Boris saying it's an outrageous snow. Uh, but not European ones. We say. <laughs> this is what the drinks industry wants you to think. The drinks industry have campaigned and continue to campaign ferociously to make people, like governments, believe that alcohol is not a drug. Try this experiment when you go home. You know, speak to your mother or your father and say, is alcohol a drug? And they'll say, what have you been taking? And, uh, and then you say, um, no, but seriously, is alcohol a drug? And they say, of course not. And you say, but why do you, why do you use it if it doesn't make you feel different? Doesn't make you f and if you take a lot, you might get drunk and you might fall over. You could even have a hangover. Of course it's a drug. And they'll look at you as if you're 
bonkers, and they'll say, look, if it was a drug, it would be illegal. And this illegality paradox permeates the whole of policymaking. It's not just limited to drugs. You see it in all other aspects of life as well. But the drug one is it's a very powerful mystique. If, a, if a, something's illegal, it's dangerous and must stay illegal. And if it's not illegal, it's not dangerous. And the alcohol industry spends billions a year persuading us that alcohol is actually not a drug. It's, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a drink. It's a necessary way of lubricating conversation during meals, etc., etc., but it's not a drug. If alcohol was invented today, and one of you clever people decided it was a great way of making trifles taste better, <laughs> you could then approach the Food Standards Agency and say, I've got this new taste, this new food additive for trifles. Can I sell it? And they'd say, sure, you can sell it, but you've got to do some safety studies. And you'd do the safety studies they told you, and you'd come back and they'd say, you'd say to them, okay, is it safe? And they'd say, yes, it's safe, but the maximum exposure for any one individual in a whole year is half a glass of wine per year. That's how toxic it is if you apply the same rules as you apply to other food additives. So we have a very special place in our decision-making for alcohol because almost all of us drink. Most of us would prefer it not to be as damaging as it is, and we really uh, want to pretend it isn't harmful. But it is. It is seriously harmful. So that sets me up for this little quiz. Um, who's heard of Amy Winehouse? <laughs> Her legacy lives on. Good. Brilliant film. You should see the film. It's a, a, for all sorts of reasons. Did she die of a drug, a drug overdose? Who thinks she died of a drug overdose? Who thinks she died of an alcohol overdose? Who thinks she died of both drugs and alcohol? Yeah. Well, it's a trick question because I'm feeling generous. and They're all right. You know, everyone's got the right answer. She died of a drugs overdose, but it was just an alcohol overdose. And Amy's story is fascinating because uh, if you see the film, you realize she was a heroin addict, but it was alcohol that killed her because she was also an alcohol addict. And she gave up heroin, and then subsequently she gave up alcohol. And she met the criteria that the current government says are, is the definition of recovery. She had been clean from alcohol for six weeks. And then she relapsed. And she, and as most people, almost, there's almost no one gives up a drug and never relapses. Most people, if they're trying to stop using a drug like alcohol, relapse five to 20 times before they give up. And she relapsed and she drank a liter of vodka and she died. Now when she died, I assume, like most of you, from this little poll we've taken, that she had taken a mixture of drugs and alcohol, but no, it was just alcohol. And in fact, alcohol poisoning kills about three people a week in this country, usually young people like her. Uh, there's only one project in the whole country going on to try to find ways of stopping people like Amy who are cured, abstinent, relapsing and dying. And that's an MRC project we've got to try to find drugs which can help people cope with abstinence and and stop relapse from abstinence. But it's a massive problem, and it's almost uh, completely ignored because of this simplistic, almost puerile belief that government, this government has that stopping use of a drug for six weeks is proof that you're cured. Now, death is a very useful metric because it's, you know, it's a final thing. There's no going back. It's unequivocal. You're dead. And uh, if you're interested in how drugs affect life, 
then we look at deaths. And you see from these data that tobacco is still the, by far and away the leading cause of premature death in people in Britain today. Over 80,000 deaths. But they're mostly in middle-aged to old people who've had their lives and at least have done something, at least procreated and produced the next generation. Alcohol is about 20,000 or so. And they're a mixture of young and old. Then you have opiates with about 1,200. You have paracetamol with about 200. Cocaine, around about 200. And then amphetamines, about 40. And the drugs that the media love to vilify, like cannabis and ecstasy, and in that case, methadrone, are virtually free of deaths. So there's a sort of paradox here that the very dangerous drugs, the drugs that are killing people are illegal drugs. If you're interested in stopping deaths, which actually government's drug policy has never been interested in death, it's just been interested in use. But if you had a rational policy and said, well, how, what other deaths can we prevent if we can't prevent uh, drug deaths? Well, you might look at these preventable deaths. So you could stop people going on holiday to the Caribbean or to the <coughs> Mediterranean and stop sunbeds. You might stop 2,000 deaths a year of melanoma. If you stop people driving, you might stop 2,500 deaths, of which some are drug-related and alcohol-related. Suicide, 6,000, and AIDS, about 400. So if you care about deaths, then you care about, have to care about um, drugs like alcohol and tobacco because those are preventable deaths. And here's a chilling statistic that alcohol is now the leading cause of death in men under the age of 50. And by the end of this decade, the way women are drinking, it'll be the leading cause of death in women under the age of 50. Now, you'd have thought that was actually something that government should care about. I mean, as a doctor, I care about that quite a lot. As a parent, I care about that even more. But uh, we don't have any policies that uh, are proven effective in trying to reduce this death rate. And in fact, the most chilling statistic was the data that came out just two weeks ago. In 2014, the latest data, there was a 6% <coughs> increase in mortality, alcohol-induced mortality for women in one year, and 3% in men. You know, I would, I would have thought that might be something you might, policy, health policymakers might be interested in. You know, we have hysteria about Ebola, but we don't mind if there's this massive increase in deaths from alcohol. And, of course, one of the reasons for that is that most politicians take some money in some way from the drinks industry. I like to show this graph because this graph spans my medical career. I started working as a doctor in 1971, and in that year they started collecting data on mortality from different disorders. And these gra this graph here shows you the death rates, standardized mortality rates for a whole range of different organ systems. And you can see over the 40 years since they started collecting that death rates from respiratory disease, heart disease, <coughs> traffic accidents, endocrine disease, blood diseases, they've all gone down. Some of them to a third of what they were in 1970, which is what you'd expect. You're, as a society, you're, you should be getting healthier because we know a lot about illness. We're being fed better in, in childhood. And medicine's better. And the reason we collect these data is to give us a clue as to whether medicine is getting better. And it is for everything except liver deaths. And isn't it strange that liver deaths have gone in the other direction? So they're four times greater than they were in 1970. And this, dry, this increase in liver deaths is driven largely by alcohol. Now you might say, well, 
For the first five years, that could be within statistical error. Maybe the next five years, well, that's well, unlikely to be just a statistical artefact. At 15 years, you know this is a fact. So what does a government do? Ah, it does the opposite of what it should do. It liberates the consumption of alcohol by allowing it to be bought in supermarkets 24-7. And we get this massive increase in dividends. So we've done exactly the right thing for the industry and exactly the wrong thing for our society. Again, by the end of this decade, liver deaths will exceed heart deaths for men. And alcohol is about the only preventable uh, thing you can do to prevent certain cancers. So here you have a, a, an example of, or the, the illustrations of the kind of cancers which are caused by drinking. And I just want to say to the women in the audience, alcohol is the only known cause of cancer that you can do anything about breast cancer. So why didn't we do anything? And I started working in this field. I mean, I've been doing research in drugs for a long time, all my life. But I started getting interested in policy when um, Tony Blair had a, a cabinet committee in about the turn of the century to look at drugs and drug harms. And I was on that working group. And we worked hard. We produced a rather good document. Um, and then when it got published, we noticed that all reference to alcohol was removed. And we said, why is that? And they said, well, we consulted with the drinks industry, and they said we were wrong. <laughs> and we said, well, what do you mean we were wrong? And they said, well, there are health benefits of alcohol as well as health harms. And therefore, we couldn't really comment on controlling alcohol. And we said, actually, that shouldn't have been your decision. You, know, you should have let the experts, rather than you know, the civil servants, eliminate all reference to alcohol in that report. Uh, and these are the data. These, you might, these are the data um, which the decision to exclude alcohol from the drugs policy was built. So this is the so-called J-shaped curve. This is the health benefit, the health benefit of alcohol, supposedly on cardiovascular disease in middle-aged men. These are all the harms. See, some of them are massive. But this, it was this is what the drinks industry has persuaded, government after government, is. The, it's, it's good enough to uh, avoid doing anything about the sale of alcohol. Now, if that's true, which it isn't, but just suppose you believe those data, suppose you think there is a health benefit, the optimal consumption of alcohol to produce that benefit is about half a unit. So when you go home tonight and you're thinking, and you're talking to your partner, and he says, while you're drinking, you say, for the health benefits, you say, right, you, you can only have a third of a glass of wine. Alternatively, the students amongst you go out, buy a pint, and have three straws, and that way you get to meet other people as well. <laughs> and this myth, this myth of the health benefits of alcohol is perpetuated by the drinks industry, it's parroted by many politicians, and it's just a lie. Now, if... One of the things I managed to achieve when I was working for the um, Home Office in the ACMD was to systematise the way in which we assess the harms of drugs. When I joined that committee, I was horrified to discover that when the chair said, what do we think about ecstasy, people said, oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's very terrible. It's even more terrible than terrible. He said, well, well, hang on, how does that compare with barbiturates? Oh, they're terrible too. Well, how terrible compare with ecstasy? 
Well, it doesn't matter. They're all terrible. So I said, well, like, before taking the job, I said, am I going to do this job if we can have a systematic, scientific way of assessing drugs? And over the years, we worked on different schemes. And this is the result of the most sophisticated analysis of drugs harm ever done. So we, we worked out, using a whole range of experts, that there are 16 different ways in which drugs can harm you. Uh, nine of them relate to the harm a drug does to you as a user. And seven relate to the harms of drugs to society. And then we went away and spent a whole weekend with, with a group of experts looking at the harms of 20 different drugs on these 16 different variables. And in the end, this graph came out. This rather famous graph now. So this is a ranking of the harms of 20 drugs in the UK. And you see, and, and to my surprise, I, I was surprised. I didn't think it would come out number one, because previous studies we'd done using less sophisticated um, analyses had shown alcohol was four or five. But here, using the best analysis we have, alcohol is the most harmful drug in the UK. And that harm is driven largely by this massive red bar. The red bar is the harm of alcohol to society. And of course, that's huge, because 87% of British population drink. So it's an extremely prevalent drug. But alcohol is responsible for over two-thirds of child abuse, probably 90% of spousal violence, a vast amount of, at least over half of acquisitive crime, burglaries, a lot of traffic accidents. It costs the health service nearly four billion a year. It costs about seven billion a year just to police drunkenness on our streets. So the costs of alcohol to society are enormous. It's not the most harmful drug to the user. The most harmful drug to the user here is crack, and then there's heroin and crystal meth. But overall, in the UK society, if we care about drug harms, we should be doing something about alcohol. And it's sort of paradoxical. The drugs, again, that the media get hysterical about are hardly harming society at all and don't have as much harm to the user as alcohol. And this was the graph that I was talking about on the Today programme, and that's what got me sacked. And one of the reasons I was sacked was that we had an ongoing battle with various uh, Home Secretaries over this drug, cannabis. There's Alan Johnson, the man who sacked me. There's me in the spliff. And here the, these are the other scientists who were sacked at the same time. And, um, well, they resigned when I was sacked. Cannabis is not just a drug. Cannabis is, an, is a very powerful political tool. And both current and past governments have seen cannabis as a really interesting and powerful way of manipulating voters. And Anna Johnson, working, well, actually, I don't know if he cared at all, but certainly... Uh, Gordon Brown wanted cannabis reclassified from class C to class B because he'd had a, a very interesting interaction with the Daily Mail who said they'd support Labour in the election if he did that. Uh, a kind of strange arrangement. It's a bit like you know, selling your soul to the devil. But, um, that's the arrangement, and the plan was then we're going <coughs> to... Cannabis had to be reclassified to satisfy the mail and to, for the mail to then follow Labour in the next... support Labour in the next election which actually they didn't do, despite the fact that the Labour Party did their share of the bargain. Now, cannabis is rather different from alcohol in that it's, we've gone from a situation where virtually no one used it in 1970 to where, when we have the latest data, which is still a bit old now, about 20 million people had used it. So 10 million people. So we had a 20-fold increase in cannabis use over that period from 1970 to the present day. And in terms of consumption of cannabis, it must be more like 50 to 100 times increase in use. So you might imagine if cannabis was harmful and people were, you know, were 
we'd have seen a harm. But we, I showed you there are no deaths. And that, pre that presents governments with a problem. If the drug doesn't kill people, how can you justify um, controlling it? And uh, the last government, and this one, decided to uh, focus on three areas where they could scare the public. Skunk, driving, and schizophrenia. <laughs> and I should say, by the way, the reason cannabis is no longer a medicine in this country was because the Americans put a lot of pressure on us in the 1960s and 70s to remove it because they didn't believe. They, they believed, as this current government does, that medical cannabis is a, a gateway to recreation use, which is absurd. But uh, that was a justification for making cannabis uh, uh, and no longer a medicine back in the 1970s. But keeping cannabis illegal is based on these three principles. Let's look at skunk. Why do we have skunk? Skunk is a product of prohibition, people growing their home rather than importing it from Morocco. And if you're going to expend energy growing plants, you <coughs> tend to buy, grow plants with the highest density strength of THC. So skunk is a, is a, sort of, it's a, it's a scare because it's, um, it's a stronger form of cannabis. Now, we've seen amazing claims made about skunk. And these claims were all made by supposed scientists. One of those claims was made by the president of the Royal College of GPs. Uh, one was made by uh, someone who almost became the government's chief scientist. Thankfully, they didn't. And one was made by someone who um, is supposedly a leading psychiatrist. And they're all ridiculous. But you can get scientists at senior levels to make ridiculous statements to appease both government desires and the media. And then after the deal with um, the male, Gordon Brown started talking about the lethality of skunk, uh, which I presume is a Scottish word for the fact it smells, I don't know. <laughs> the reality of skunk is that skunk is about 15% THC, uh, so skunk to, to resin or hash is like wine to beer. Now, we all have learnt not to drink beer by the pint, haven't we? Well, except maybe the students here, I don't know. But, but the reality is that to be frightened of something because it's strong is uh, naive unless you don't tell people what the strength is. However, there is possibly one other problem with the uh, mutation, the uh, morphing of cannabis to skunk, which is it's lost cannabidiol. If you grow a lot of THC, the plant can't make cannabidiol. And cannabidiol is a kind of protective... Um, product in the plant, which does have some, it does attenuate some of the more extreme, probably some of the more paranoid-inducing effects of cannabis. But most people, when they use skunk, they don't, they don't use as much as they use hash, so they self, they self titrate. The traffic fear is com uh, extraordinarily exaggerated. Being stoned doubles your risk of a road traffic accident. Being drunk increases it about eightfold, <coughs> and the two together are additive. So again, you know, if you care about harms, you do something about alcohol. We have the second highest drink driving threshold in the world after Tanzania. And then there was schizophrenia. Why do we? So this idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia was actually what Alan Johnson said in Parliament when Chris Hewn, who was a, and the Lib Dems were very supportive of me, they they opposed my sacking. And Johnson said, and also Nutt says that cannabis does not cause schizophrenia, whereas Professor Murray, and even a prison governor, who I met last week, told me it does. 
And, well, that's great, Alan, but um, the reality is that that 20-fold increase in the number of cannabis users has not translated into any increase in the prevalence or the incidence of schizophrenia or even psychosis. Not in Britain, these are the MRC data, or any other country in the world where that massive increase in use has happened. So this is a fiction, but it's a convenient fiction because it allows the media and politicians to scare people into keeping cannabis controlled. In fact, if you believe the, the one piece of data which is all, almost powered enough to ask the question, does cannabis cause schizophrenia, 1957, uh, Swedish conscript study, if you believe that data, which is not actually true, but it's good enough, if you believe that, then you've got to stop 5,000 young men uh, or 7,000 young women from ever smoking cannabis to stop one case of schizophrenia. Now, that's a number needed to treat, in medical terms, of 5,000. You don't invest in any treatment that has a number needed to treat of more than 20. So it's, it's ridiculous to think that you can actually intervene with schizophrenia by uh, trying to stop cannabis use, particularly trying to stop cannabis use for criminalising young men. However, Jackie Smith said this, my decision uh, to reclassify cannabis takes into account issues such as public perception, which of course was generated by the media, policing priorities, which have not really nothing to do with um, whether a, a drug is illegal or not, and where there is clear and uh, where there is a clear and serious problem, but doubt about the potential harm, we must err not err on the we must err on the side of caution and protect the public. I make no apology for that. I am not prepared to wait and see. To which my response was, "Well, that's all very well, Jackie, but we know alcohol is killing at that time fifteen thousand people a year. There isn't any doubt. Do something about it." And the response was just nothing, because governments really hate people pointing out that alcohol is a problem. And that's fundamentally dishonest. And then, of course, the policing priorities were rapidly turned into uh, incentivizing the police to catch young men possessing cannabis. And uh, there are a million young men in this country now who've got criminal convictions for possessing cannabis. They're an underclass. They can't get jobs in teaching, or the police, or the civil service, or the military. So what do they do? Well, they do minor theft and they deal drugs. And one of the reasons we had the riots in, in London and other cities was because uh, there was just a, a lot of resentment to the fact that their lives were being ruined. Being Giving a criminal record for possessing cannabis is, destroys your life trajectory. And they, they knew that that was unfair, and, and it was, they resent the fact that the police who arrest them are doing more harms to themselves by using alcohol than they're doing using cannabis. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an appalling example of, of, of policy damaging uh, the, the sort of harmony in our society. And of course, the attack on cannabis recreational use has actually had a huge negative impact on, on the possibility of using it for medical purposes. So, couple of nice images. Cannabis is one of the oldest medicines, maybe the oldest medicine in the world. And it was legal in this country to 1971. Uh, when it got banned, it got banned, as I've said, because of American pressure to, to ban all drugs. And because two GPs were in London were prescribing uh, cannabis and telling people to dry it out on cigarettes, on tobacco and smoke it.
We go back 100 years, there's Queen Victoria, most powerful woman that's ever lived, I imagine. And she used cannabis uh, to deal with period pains and to deal with the pains of childbirth. And actually, it's interesting, in America now, you can, they've now just released a new rapidly dissolving cannabis film for period pains, for those of you women who are interested in that. But that's illegal here. 100 years ago, the most powerful woman in the world could use it, could be prescribed. Now, this is where we have, this is what we have. This is actually what the Labour government did by inf actively enforcing a criminalization of cannabis users. I get many emails like this. Here's a teacher in her 50s. She's in a wheelchair with multiple sclerosis. Cannabis is the only relief she gets. Three times now, her front door has been broken down by police on dawn raids. If they rang the bell, she'd let them in because she can't jump out the window because she's in a wheelchair. <laughs> Why do the police do this? Well, they do it for two reasons, because some of them enjoy smashing down doors. They like dressing up as military, paramilitary individuals. And, of course, they get overtime as well because it happens at 3 in the morning. And uh, If this woman's convicted again, she must go to prison. So her life is in the hands of the police because she still uses cannabis because that's the only relief she gets. And I think, well, that's not the kind of society I want to live in, really. It's, uh, it's certainly, the attack on her is completely disproportionate to the possible harms that cannabis might be doing to her. And it's even more outrageous when you think of the benefit it's doing. And I think Queen Victoria would not have been amused by that. But the war on cannabis has done something even worse. It's opened this Pandora's box of spice. Did you hear this morning, Leicester Prison? Prisoners are rioting to get spice. Spice is uh, a generic term for a whole range of synthetic cannabinoids. When people started clamping down on cannabis, sensible middle-class people said, well, I don't want to get arrested for having cannabis. Can I find an alternative? There are many thousand variants of cannabis which have been made by the pharmaceutical industry in the 1970s. They were ignored, they were disbanded. None of them came to the market because they were too toxic and unpleasant. But they have now, they have now because People would rather take the risk with their health of smoking spice than have a criminal record for using cannabis. And you can see this vast increase in seizures. So that's probably 10% of the spice. Spice is so potent that a ton of spice is, is enough to give some, a, probably 10 million people a high. So we have created this monster of spice. In some prisons, <coughs> we have up to 75% of prisoners taking it. There are so many of them, you can't, we can't test for them. And they're so potent that you don't know what you, you don't, have no idea what dose you're getting. And there are deaths, and there are huge numbers of people going psychotic. Now, we, countries like the Netherlands, which have a rational cannabis policy, i.e. legal cannabis, they don't have spice, because no one needs it. Spice is a classic example of where prohibition has driven individuals to find more potent and therefore more dangerous drugs. And we've seen it before. The ban on opium led to heroin. The ban on alcohol led to methanol. The ban on cannabis has led to spice. Clamping down on cocaine led to crack. And I don't think we can ever get rid of this now. We have, a, we have an almost insoluble problem. The only solution, I think, actually, is to allow all prisoners to smoke cannabis if they want. And I can't see the current Home Secretary bringing that one in. <laughs> but maybe if Labour get back into power, I don't know. And we've also done really stupid things, like we've just started putting, filling our prisons up with people who are on drug offences. You go to prison with a cannabis offence or an MDMA offence, 
And what do you do? Well, you get bored and you take heroin. So we actually put people into prison, spend £50,000 a year on each of them, and turn them into even more heavy drug users. It's ridiculous policy. So those are, that's the sort of political aspect of it. What about the media? Because the media, in many ways, are the root of all this. And I just want to share with you this wonderful PhD data from Alistair Forsyth. So he worked in the MRC Health Unit in Glasgow University. And in the 1990s, he did his, his PhD. He looked at every single coroner's case in Scotland in the 1990s, extracted every one in which a drug other than alcohol was present at death, and then went and looked at every newspaper in Scotland, local and national, to see if those deaths were reported. There were 2,255 deaths where a drug was present, and 546, about one in four, got reported. And then he asked the question, is there any differential reporting of drug deaths? Well, there is. If you die of paracetamol overdose, you know, almost, almost never is it going to be reported. All those people would have died of paracetamol poisoning. If you die of, of a rare death, amphetamine, so 30 odd, 36 deaths with amphetamine present at death, that means probably maybe a third, maybe 12 actually died of amphetamine, much more likely to get reported. Yeah, cocaine's down in one in eight deaths, one in 16 from methadone, heroin only one in five, but the drug that always gets reported is ecstasy, even though there were probably about one death a year in Scotland from ecstasy in that period, directly due to ecstasy. So the reason everyone's terrified of ecstasy is because that's all they ever read about in the newspapers. And it's truly a, a very powerful example of actually how the media do have an influence, but they have an influence in the wrong direction. We should be warning people about the deaths of paracetamol, not of ecstasy. And in fact, if you want to read more about this, you can read the essay I wrote in The Guardian uh, late last year. Almost all the calls for a prohibition of drugs in the history of the world have come from media extremists. <coughs> but the police have a part of the problem too, because the police become complicit with the media in terms of reporting drug harms. And this is one of the most surreal phone conversations in my life. I, uh, I was actually in Barcelona, and I got a phone call uh, from CNN. And two days before, I'd done an interview with them in London on Mephadrone, MCAT, Meow Meow, finding out about what, it was, what was happening. And they said, where's Scunthorpe? Now, that's not a question I'd ever been asked before, certainly not by an American, and I bet none of you have. I said, why do you want to go to Scunthorpe? And they said, ah, because the Humberside police have called an international press conference to share with the world that two young men they think have died from taking methadrone, MCAT. I said, that's impossible. Two weeks before, I had seen the Israeli government report on the methadone epidemic in Israel. Methadone is an Israeli drug. It was actually invented as a as a way of controlling aphids on plant crops there. And then it got diverted into the Israeli uh, youth. And their report said about 450,000 young Israelis had been using methadone for two years, and there was not a single death. So I said to the CNN people, well, I cannot believe that is true, That's, but if you really want to go to Scunthorpe, then you go up the M1 for four hours and turn right. Um, now, I don't know if they found it. I, I presume I'm right but, uh, about the instructions. But if they got there, they'd have heard this. So the police dragged onto the, 
to the stage, Nick's dad, the bottom lad's dad. And Nick's dad's weeping as he urges youngsters to avoid the drug. But he's not actually weeping because uh, of the drug. He's weeping because he's looking, his son has died. And he says this, I don't want him to be labelled a druggie because he wasn't. He was just on a night out with friends enjoying himself, a normal, caring, hard-working lad. Now, every word in that red sentence is correct, except for the one I've highlighted to make it easy for you. Because he was a druggie. He was an alcohol druggie. He'd been out drinking for about seven hours on a Sunday night in six different bars, and then he wandered off into Scunthorpe with his mate, and they died. And they died because they took methadone plus alcohol. Methadone is a potent opiate. It depresses respiration, particularly in conjunction with alcohol. Now, the police knew that. But you could not get CNN to go to Scunthorpe to talk about two deaths from an opiate and alcohol. Because they'd just say, well, there's five of those every night in Detroit. So that wouldn't be news. But if you say a new drug, a scary new drug, has killed people, you can get the international press there. And this hyping up of harms by the police is actually the norm. It's one way of getting CNN to Scunthorpe. The only way, probably. <laughs> and there was a media clamour that we've got to ban this drug, even though, as far as I know, no one had died. The drug was banned. And it was banned even though there were no deaths. OK, you might say, well, yeah, but that's all, yeah, OK, nuts, you know, yeah, OK, maybe it doesn't kill people, but it's not a good thing, is it, to have people taking new drugs you don't know much about? Couldn't, how could banning a drug do any harm? Isn't it better to be precautionary? Let's ban all drugs, and then, then you know, some good might come. Well, methadone is a fascinating example because, because we have data now on the impact <coughs> of a methadone, a free market, a drug, methadone, you could buy on the internet in some towns, you could order it on the phone, and they would deliver it to you within the same time it takes them to deliver the bottle of scotch that you order over the phone uh, and the pizza. So you could have methadone delivered to your house within an hour of ordering it. It was a, rel it's a, a relatively weak stimulant, and what you got was what was on the packet because it was legal, so people had no reason not to sell what they said they were selling. And here you see this amazing data. So cocaine deaths had risen and risen and risen despite the best efforts of the ACMD and the Home Office. If you sat me for that, I'd have said, that's fair, fair cop. But anyway, at this point, we couldn't do anything about cocaine deaths until the free market brings in methadone. And people switch from not very good quality cocaine, full of rat poison and stuff, to methadone. And look, <coughs> year, first two years, when methadone's available, fewer people die from cocaine. Methadrone almost certainly saved many more lives than it killed. And that's the general principle. If you give people access to a safer drug and they use it, they're not so likely to die. And that's well established. That's why we have benzodiazepines, because people were dying of barbiturates, like Marilyn Monroe. The reason we have buprenorphine, to stop people dying from heroin. And methadrone, to stop people dying from cocaine. So this is a health improvement. In fact, if I had brought that in, I would be getting a Nobel Prize, probably, for controlling the deaths from cocaine. But because the free market did it, uh, it no one has really taken any notice. And then, of course, the drug gets banned because the media get hysterical. And it carries on. All the supplies get used for the next year because people stockpile. And then look what happens. And now, last year, the highest number of deaths ever recorded in this country from cocaine. The reason methadone doesn't kill people is because even if you take a gram, it doesn't kill you. It's a weak stimulant. It's like a double-strength caffeine. But because 
it's banned, we now no longer have this um, benefit in terms of reducing stimulant deaths. It didn't just reduce cocaine deaths, it also reduced deaths from amphetamine. And as a doctor, you know, we, we always feel that we're living in the shadow of Hippocrates, and one of his uh, axioms about medical training was primum non nocere, first do no harm. And it is a principle of medical ethics. And you think, perhaps, that that principle might apply to the law. Wouldn't that be a sensible principle to apply to the law? I don't know. I mean, I would have thought so. But um, it certainly would be a great principle to apply to governments. The reality is that we have many drugs which are illegal that are potential medicines. Some of them, like cannabis, were medicines. Ecstasy was a kind of medicine before it was banned. LSD was a medicine for 15 years before it was banned. Many, many difficult-to-treat illnesses where people have failed on conventional treatments are amenable to treatment with these banned drugs. But the regulations, which are designed to stop recreational use and fail to do that, do stop research. They do stop studies of <coughs> these drugs. In Britain, only four hospitals have a license to hold cannabis. Every hospital can hold heroin. Cannabis is treated as more dangerous than heroin. And when you ask the Home Office why that is, they say, because it is. And you say, well, why is it? And they say, because it always has been. And you say, but that isn't a very good answer. And then they turn away and... Uh, it is absurd that I have to have a special police check to be able to work with cannabis when I can prescribe heroin. <laughs> and this censorship comes from the UN conventions. And uh, they have... They're arbitrary, they're political, uh, and they've held back research for 50 years. They've also held back medical... Yeah, he's got to go and give a lecture himself. So. Um, <laughs> he told me. Two-thirds of the world's population, that is, the population of India and China, have no access to strong painkillers because their governments think it's easier to ban morphine than to regulate morphine. Psychedelics, which I'll show you, have fascinating opportunities for therapy, are illegal everywhere in the world. MDMA is banned in most of the world. And because they're Schedule I drugs, even though governments say, we don't stop you researching them in practice, the regulations make it virtually impossible. And I think this is the worst censorship of research. Actually, I think it's the worst censorship of research in life sciences and medical sciences in the history of the world. There's only one comparable example in the history of science which is the banning of the telescope in 1616. <laughs> and that was the Catholic Church deciding it didn't want the world to know that the Earth was not the center of the universe, that the sun was. And that ban lasted 150 years or so. The ban on psychedelics has lasted since 1961 for cannabis and 1967 for, for psychedelics and LSD. You think of the, the growth of neuroscience research in those 50 years and how little has been done with these drugs. This is definitely, I think, the worst censorship that there probably ever has been in terms of the lost opportunities for science. If you're interested in this, which I hope some of you are, you can read the sort of definitive review uh, in June 2013 in Nature Reviews Neuroscience, or you, there's a freebie in PLOS Biology which came out last year, which is a bit easier as well, so a bit shorter. I'm going to finish by telling you how we're fighting back and how fighting back is actually proved rather revelationary in terms of uh, therapeutic potential. So I've been working with the Beckley Foundation, which is based near Oxford, to try to redress this 50-year moratorium on research. 
And we've done a number of studies, uh, uh, largely around psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms are, uh, well, they grow around here, they grow around most of Britain, and they contain an active ingredient called psilocybin. It's a short-acting psychedelic. Um, we started with psilocybin for two reasons. It's short-acting, and no politician knows how to spell it, so they can't get angry. <laughs> um, and uh, we gave it intravenously in the first experiments because we couldn't afford the cost of this to give it orally. Because once a drug's illegal, the price of manufacture goes up something like a hundredfold because of all the regulatory hurdles that the chemists have to have, the suppliers have to have, and the people like me who end up storing it have to have. So it becomes prohibitively expensive. We could not afford to do it orally. We've started doing it orally now because the price has come back. And this shows a very uh, simple demonstration of what happens in the brain. Now, when you see these kind of images of brain activity, blue means less. We assumed that giving psilocybin to people and making them have a whole sort of interesting set of geometric hallucinations, colors, shapes, and things moving around, their whole sense of body disorder, altering, we thought those powerful changes in consciousness would be associated with an increase in brain activity. But in fact, nowhere was there an increase in activity in the brain. All there was was a shut-off. Amazing. I mean, no one really could have predicted that. But, uh, and so it's, a, and it's true, we've replicated it several times now. But the really interesting thing for this audience is that one of the regions that was powerfully switched off is this region here. And this region is the region that drives depression. This region is overactive in depression. And most, in fact, I think I can say all effective treatments for depression switch that region off. It's called the anterior subgenual sub cingulate cortex. And it drives depression. So switching it off should reduce depression. And in fact, many of our volunteers came out of the scanner and they felt happier. And they stayed happy for, for several days or weeks. And we thought, this is interesting. And we wrote a grant to the MRC. We could perhaps help people with resistant depression by giving them one single psilocybin trip and see if we could switch that region off and improve their mood. And it got funded. Amazing, it got funded because I think it's good science. The grant was awarded in 2012. It took three iterations by the Ethics Committee to allow us to do it. The most restrictive constraints I've ever seen in a study. They've, we had to do a pilot study with six-month safety follow-up. But Hell, I say people are eating these every weekend in Brecon. But no, six-month safety follow-up. But that was easy. Ethics was easy. It took 30 months to get the drug supply for all these regulations. And then it took 32 months to get regulator approval. So almost all the grant was spent before we could do the study, just on going through these regulations designed to stop young people eating mushrooms in the Brecon Beacons. I mean, come on, let's get real about this. I mean, all they do is stop me doing research. But it was worth it. We did it. These are the results. They're not yet published. They're under review at the Lancet at present. And they show that a week after a single psilocybin experience, there's a massive reduction in depressive symptoms and this effect lasts, and it lasts up to three months in some people. They stay well. This is a, this is a revolution. If this is true, i.e. if we can replicate it, this is a revolution in treating people with resistant depression. Nothing else has ever done had that kind of power of recovery. <coughs> and then there's MDMA. Any of you see the Channel 4 MDMA program? 
So we gave the same dose of MDMA that Leah Betts took when she died. We gave him 80 milligrams of the free base. Luckily, none of our people died because she didn't die of ecstasy poisoning. She died of water poisoning, but that's another story. People say to me, why did you go and do something as sensational as working with Jon Snow uh, on Channel 4? And I want to tell you the story because it's an interesting story. For eight years, I had been writing grants to the MRC and the Wellcome Trust to get funding to study the effects of MDMA because I argued uh, that it's a very interesting drug. It's the only drug we know of that increases empathy and people like each other more under it. So, so that's an interesting tool to study empathy. It's been used for 30 years, recreationally for 25. I reckon over 100, 1,000 million doses, a billion doses of ecstasy must have been used in the world. And we, no one's ever done a study to find out what it does in the brain. That's got to be critical, important science. Anyway, Channel 4 came to me when they had their new uh, head, of, uh, head of program in Jay Gould. Uh, and she said, um, would I do uh, a program giving people cocaine live on TV? And I said, Channel 4? No, no, that's what the BBC do. No, um, and uh, she went away, and, uh, and after a month they came back and they said, well, okay, if you won't do cocaine live on TV, what class A drug would you do? <coughs> and I said, MDMA, of course, because I've been, it needs to be done. So we did it. And I think this has truly got to be the first, the best scientific study ever done, paid for by a TV company. And again, the results are remarkable. So MDMA also switches off the brain, like psilocybin. But it switches off different parts of the brain. It switches off the parts of the brain involved in emotional regulation rather than perception. And that's why it may be useful in the treatment of PTSD, because it help, may help people deal with the... Uh, the t terrible emotional responses to the memories, and so they get control of them. <coughs> so this is actually again, a very important set of studies, which are almost impossible to do because the regulations uh, make it much too, just too hard. Now those two studies uh, were um, the subject of, of interest by this man, Jim Dobbin. And uh, Jim Dobbin was a Labour MP. He was one of the few people in Parliament who actually knew how to spell the word drug because he was a pharmacist. But he hated research with illegal drugs. And you see, after the psilocybin study, he said, why was Prof not allowed to use an illegal drug in a scientific study? And this gets back to the point I made at the beginning. This illegality paradox. If something's illegal, people think you should not work with it. And then after the MDMA study, you could see, he tried to get the Home Secretary to initiate a policy of getting rid of our license to do this work. Now this man could be the deciding vote as to whether we go to war. He could decide whether we will live or die. And his knowledge and understanding of, kind of the intellectual principles underpinning science is that limited. It's, I find that terrifying. Uh, the only good news is he's now dead, so hopefully he won't do it again. <laughs> now, but it does get worse. I thought when you break free from the Dobbin clause, you get the May clause. This is now where we are. We have now, we have royal assent to the Psychoactive Substances Act, which bans the sale of any psychoactive substance now or ever in eternity, unless till the act is revoked, even if it's harmless. There are only three exemptions, ethanol, nicotine, and caffeine. 
When you say why they're exempted, they're exempted on the grounds of precedence, not on the grounds of harm or safety. And the Act doesn't define what psychoactivity means. So really, anything could be illegal if it affects your brain. They ban poppers. And when I said to them, well, hang on, but if you take poppers, as one of the MPs said, who said, I take poppers, and the only thing it does is give me a damn headache. <laughs> is that psychoactivity? Do you want to ban? Th I mean, it's the law is absurd. And in fact, it probably would ban oxygen. If, they, you know, if you had oxygen bars like in Japan, they would probably be illegal now. It is, it is, a, it is a bizarre attack on any kind of personal liberty, but also on science. Why do we have it? Well, having got rid of methadrone MCAT, the sun decided it had to take on another drug, and it decided to take on nitrous oxide. And they attacked football players for using balloons of nitrous oxide. So the reason football players use nitrous oxide is because it doesn't test positive in their urine. They're not as stupid as you think they are. <laughs> So how do you get rid of a drug like nitrous oxide? Well, the first thing is you give it a dangerous name, and you call it hippie crack. <laughs> and you can imagine, you know, these, all these middle-aged Tory voting people, oh my god, hippies are coming back and they're taking crack. We've got to stop this. You know, and no self-respecting hippie would ever take nitrous. And, and it's not a bit like crack. It's, complete, it's not remotely like crack. I don't know who invented this word, but that's, it's good enough to scare people. Newspapers don't have to justify those kind of hysteria. I'm very attached to nitrous oxide because it's a Bristol drug, and I'm a Bristol boy. <laughs> Here's Humphrey Davy, the greatest ever chemist in this, this country ever produced. He used to work in hot wells. Priestley, his colleague, invented, discovered nitrous oxide. Davy researched it, used it, enjoyed it, used it to help have fun when he didn't want to get drunk. In 200 years, uh, it's been around. It was about, about, it was about 1807 it was discovered. There have been no accidental deaths, a few suicides. But I have to tell you, more people die each year of helium than of nitrous. But we don't know if helium is psychoactive. Because, of course, no one knows of anything psychoactive because they haven't defined it. Coleridge, Southey used it instead of sometimes instead of opium for their poetic inspiration. Millions of women use it in childbirth. I, I was given it just a few months ago, and I broke my wrist. They tried to reset it. It was unpleasant and, but, and a bit nauseous-making. certainly didn't terrify me. And no one really got upset when Prince Harry used it. But if a footballer is using it, and they're mostly what newspapers write about, then that's dangerous. So we've got to get rid of nitrous oxide. And I just want to share with you two footballers taking nitrous oxide. <laughs> On one side, you've got Raheem Sterling, who's been vilified by the sun for his balloon. On the other side, you've got Luke Shaw. Uh, I think he plays for Man United, doesn't he? Or did, until he had his legs smashed up. Now, when, they, when you see, hear someone being, uh, someone being stretched off like Luke and given oxygen, that is a lie. They're not being given oxygen. They don't need to. They're at ground level or sea level or near. <laughs> They're being given nitrous oxide to deal with the pain of the broken leg. So people don't realise that nitrous oxide is actually a good thing. They only see the supposed bad thing of someone having a short-term, a, sh a transient piece of, uh, sort of euphoria from a, inhaling a balloon of nitrous. Well, have we done this? Well, I think the truth is, it, it's basically, the media have to ban drugs. I think some editors of newspapers, you know, they're too old to have sex. So they don't chip <laughs> on the bedstead. People they've had sex with, they just chip how many drugs they got banned. I think it's, it's a kind of metric of harm, a metric of achievement. And there's this local antipathy. So, the, so, the, so this, act, this act, the Psychoactive Substances Act, is really an act about banning head shops. 
because head shops are new sex shops. Um, some of you won't know what a sex shop was. So before the internet, people used to go into... <laughs> the driver is interesting. The people that have campaigned viciously to get this act is this Centre for Social Policy. This is Ian Duncan Smith's think tank. This is a right-wing Christian Puritan think tank. It's got funding from uh, strange charities which have come at arm's length out of the, uh, the American uh, military or military industry. And they want actually to get rid of anything that might give you pleasure other than whipping yourself. <laughs> and they've lied consistently. This act is based on their lies about there being 100 deaths from legal highs each year, even though we published in The Lancet a critique of that, their claim showing that actually, in reality, almost all the drugs that are called legal highs are, have been, are illegal, or, and some of them have been illegal as long as MDMA has been illegal, like 30 years. So as Disraeli said, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, and there are lies, damn lies, and legal high statistics. The Misuse of Drugs Act actually has worked well here. We reckon there's about five deaths a year from real legal highs. And that's because the, people, the head shops don't want their customers to die, because a dead customer isn't a good customer. <laughs> so they only sell things that are just safe, the things that they've used themselves. And they can also guide people on dosing and, um, and, and how, you know, rep repetition, etc. Even though that's illegal, they're not allowed to do that, they do that. Now they've gone, it's all in the black market. You go to a black market to get legal highs, you'll always be offered much more dangerous drugs like heroin and cocaine, because that's where the profit is. Or you go to the internet and you have no idea what you're getting. So we have just essentially used this massively restrictive piece of legislation to shut down about 58 head shops in this country. And the driver behind that is this lady, Theresa May, and I want to... So many of you don't remember her when she was young. This was when she was the chairman of the Conservative Party. And in the, when they were in opposition in their conference in 2003, she said this, wearing her leopard skin mules, she said, we must escape the image of being the nasty party. And I've met, I put image in red because she doesn't say we must stop being the nasty party. <laughs> and that's very telling because this is what she says now. I will stop you having fun, even if it's harmless. <laughs> and this is what this act is about. It's not about saving lives, because there aren't any deaths or hardly any. This is simply about controlling the way in which young people engage with the world. And so now the only drug you can use to intoxicate yourself is alcohol, which is much more harmful than most of the drugs which were being sold as legal highs. But she's a daughter of a vicar, and this is actually what's really what she means. She's, this act is really saying, thou shalt have no other drug but alcohol forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Which is what the act has said. There's another side, of course, which is called the Bullingdon side. So, so here are our, here's David as a, a member of the Bullingdon Club in, in his outfit in Oxford as a young man. The Bullingdon Club, if you haven't seen the film The Riot Club, you should see it. It's like a documentary, but <laughs> they're slightly better looking. Um, here they are dressed up. So they used to go on these massive binges. They used to fuel themselves up with cocaine so they could stay awake and allow, so they could drink insane amounts of alcohol and then get into fights. And then when the police came, they'd just give them a lot of 50-pound notes and they would go home and clean up. And this is David on the steps there saying, the proles are complaining. We're going to ban nitrous oxide. And... The next David is saying, that's Boris, by the way, if you don't recognise him when he's young. He's saying, let them snort coke, it was good enough for us. And, uh, and that's the truth. That's the truth. The truth is that these young men 
were able to use a lot of drugs and uh, got away with it because they were rich and white and, um, and lived in Oxford. And, uh, and now they come to rule us, they have forgotten that. Or maybe they just feel that if they're clever enough to get away with it, other people should be. I think this is perhaps the worst law ever. In terms of a moral law, it's immoral. It pushes people to use drugs like alcohol, which is more dangerous than many drugs. <coughs> we know it will increase harms and deaths through the black market. The Irish brought it in four years ago. They've had three plus five prosecutions. and death, So they've closed their head shops, but death rates are going up. And the Irish have the highest use of psychoactive substances uh, in Europe. It's based on lies, false premises. It bans safe substances like nitrous. And it's anti-scientific. There was no mention in the first reading of the bill anything about science. And when we said to them, well, hang on, this will stop all brain science, they said, what's that? And we said, that's things that people like us in universities do. Oh, what are the... So anyway, we've managed to get science, scientific research exempted, but in a way which is not very clear, and I'm not confident that science is properly protected, because a lot will depend on the interpretation of the people who make drugs for us as to whether they're psychoactive or not. And I think this is the worst law since the first Elizabeth brought in the Act of Supremacy in 1559. For those of you who weren't there then, what she said was, basically, you have to believe in the Anglican communion, not the Catholic communion. I don't know what the difference is. I suppose most of you don't either. But it was important in those days, because if you got the wrong one, you were burnt at the stake. <laughs> I'm going to finish now. I'm going to finish by telling you what I think should be the underpinning principle of our laws. This is, a, 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 this is after John Stuart Mill, who said, in a freedom-loving society, no conduct by rational adults should be criminalized unless it's harmful to others. When I started working, uh, helping the government make sense of drugs, I kind of assumed that that was the principle on which the British state, even though we haven't got a constitution, was based. It's become absolutely apparent to me now in the last 10 years that that is not the case, but it should be. And hopefully you will work uh, in appropriate ways to change the politics and the media in this country to make that the underpinning principle. Thank you very much.